Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer. Prashant, how you doing? Not too bad. It's uh, it's another day, it's another week getting started here, and it's what after a few weeks of not really having any hockey news whatsoever, I think uh, we've now got a steady diet of information, starting I think with Bob McKenzie's uh, long-anticipated list coming out today. Yeah, always a fun list. Uh, the Bob McKenzie, especially the final one, because you know his his methodology. It's not really Bob really ranking them based on his uh, assessment. It's, it's like a, it's a poll of scouts, and so I think that gives it um, kind of a weight to what its predictive ability is. And I, I feel like the the value of it is then you say, hey, okay, this is kind of the industry consensus. Individual scouts will vary sometimes widely, and it only ever takes one team. So. You know, it's it's not like a gospel of an order things are going to go, but it, it usually, you know, historically, I, I treat it to be to be close to as, as close to a consensus as we're going to get in the public, at least. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. Like uh, over the last few years, when you've looked at uh, you know Bob's list, and again, I think you made an important distinction here in that uh, his list is not his own list. This isn't you know the talent evaluation done by Bob McKenzie, and you're getting that final list. What uh, what you're effectively getting is the most plugged-in guy in hockey talking to all of these different scouts, teams, organizations, and effectively getting his consensus of the opinion of those scouts. And so that's why you know this is such a valuable uh, you know tool for for a lot of fans to see because when he releases this list, you know you're getting a list that's kind of. In, in like basically indicating where people think they're going to go in these different rounds here. Or where they have them. But that tends to be not, not too far off of a correlation. No, it really doesn't. So, for example, you know, if you just take the last five years, so 2015 through 2019, and you just looked at players that Bob had ranked in the top 31, on average, he's off by less than five picks for where that player mm. goes. So that's just unreal level of accuracy through those first 31 picks. And again, he's not necessarily, you know, predicting the talent level that that player will have at the next level. What this list is more indicating is where the player is actually going to get picked from a draft order standpoint. So I think there's a couple of really important distinctions there, but at the end of the day, this is a valuable tool for people to look at because you're getting some insight as to where, a lot of these organizations think these players might go, and ultimately it tends to be pretty darn accurate when you look at at least the first rounds. And then if you expand it out to every player that Bob's ranked over the last five years, which for the last couple of years he's done 93 players. Uh, in 2016, he did 80 players. In 2015, he did 75 players. When you add in all of those players, uh, his He's on average off by about 13 picks, which again, not very far off when you're talking about projecting where a player might get drafted. So uh, it's an interesting list for us to then take and say, all right, who do we think might be available um, for the Red Wings in kind of these different scenarios? It is. And that's how we're going to spend, I think, most of the episode today, if that's fine with you. That works for me. All right, so let's start. I mean, right toward the top of the list already. There's something that I'm 100% confident Red Wings fans are going to want to talk about and, and are going to want us to talk about. Tim Stutzla getting the nod up to number two over Quinton Byfield. Um, the rationale in the Bob McKenzie story, which is on TSN.ca, is basically that there were five scouts who had Stutzla at number two, five scouts that had Byfield at number two, but every scout of the ten that TSN surveyed had Stutzla either two or three. He, McKenzie said that two of the 10 scouts he surveyed had Byfield at number six. So that ultimately knocks him down to the number three spot on the consensus rankings. There's a couple things that we should dive into there, but where do you want to start? I think number one, it's it's getting more and more confirmation that the Stutzla train is really in full force right now. I think uh, over the last few weeks, there's kind of been these rumblings that you know, Byfield's stock was slipping to a certain extent, that Stutzla was kind of gaining traction in the eyes of a lot of scouts. And then you get McKenzie's list here, again, the most plugged-in man in hockey, and you're getting him saying that a lot his impression from the people he talked to is that Stutzla is a legitimate contender to go at two. And so, you know, I think that's a really fascinating 
you know, piece of information after, you know, a majority of the year, you had a, a lock for one and two. I think you and I have even talked about back in December and November that Byfield was potentially pushing Lafreniere for number one. And now you're seeing a kind of a final list here from Bob McKenzie that Byfield has dropped to three, Stuthla is up to two. Um, and that's going to be very, very interesting if the Red Wings don't land the first or fourth pick. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. It's going to make for quite a conversation, not only if the Red Wings are picking two as to who they should take, but when they're picking three as to who might fall to them. I mean, if it's if it's if it's as if if the sample of ten extrapolates out perfectly, then it could really just come down to a, a, a you know which team is picking ahead of the Red Wings if they end up at three. So and and you know. I, I'm. These are ten scouts, not ten teams. Final boards, as far as I understand it. So, um, y- you never know how that ultimately plays out. Like it is possible that you know there's a scout on a team that has Stutzla at say number two, but the team board still has him at number three. So it's not necessarily to say it's a true coin flip, but it it definitely makes it at least a conversation. Yeah, and for what it's worth, when you look back at Bob's list, the players that he's listed at one and two um, over the last five years have gone one and two. So I think it's mm. it's very interesting because he's not missed those picks. Like no one has gone, you know, one when he said that they would go two and, and vice versa. It's literally been one, two in the order, no mistakes. So uh, there has not been one like this in that time, though, right? Like it's been. I mean, the, the, I think you could argue the 2017 draft with Nico Hishire and Nolan Patrick. I think okay. came right down to the wire between who was going to go one and who was going to go two. Um, you know, but there was no debate as to who the top two. Were. No, no, no. And so what I'm saying, he's not only did he get the top two right, he got the top two in order right. And so yeah. I think it's it's kind of in that perspective that he's he's again quite plugged in there. Um, you know, I think for a time in, for sure. in, in 2018, Zadina was challenging um, in that top two and three, and then he, you know, again in Bob's list, had slipped behind Brady Kachuk, and sure enough, that's kind of how that played out. So. I think it's a little bit informative in terms of where everyone's leaning. And again, important to note that this is where necessarily teams are leaning, but not necessarily how good these players are going to be down the road. Yeah, yeah. And that's it's a good distinction to make. Um, the other thing that obviously on that suits the Byfield conversation, a couple of the scouts having Byfield at six, I, I think we're both going to disagree with that, but very interesting. Very kind of separate from what the – uh, what I would call, I guess, what the the force of, of things has been, I guess. Yeah, I try really hard to avoid making these strong statements on the talent level of a 17-year-old kid because, look, I mean, we're, a lot of us are throwing darts blindfolded here. Um, even NHL teams, to a certain degree, are throwing darts blindfolded when they're projecting how a 17-year-old player might turn out. But if you're looking at, you know, a six foot four, 220-pound center that was one of the most dominant scoring forces, and he's one of the youngest players in this draft, and you're coming away saying, I need to drop him in my rankings, you know, from a consensus two down to as low as six. I have a hard time believing that there are five players better than Quentin Byfield in this draft. I think even in Bob's write-up, he makes a note of it where one scout says, even if he never hits that elite potential, he's still a top-line player. And I think that's so important uh, when you're considering Quentin Byfield is not only is his ceiling so high, his floor is also quite high. This is not a kid who's a boomer bust player, in my opinion. I think he's a kid that has a really high floor. And those are the kinds of players you want to be taking in the early part because having that high ceiling plus high floor combo offers you that safety net in addition to the fact that they could just you know vastly exceed your expectations. Yeah, the only even remotely like compelling shortfall Byfield has had this year was the world junior production. And that was even then like, he's so young for that level and it was so comparable to what Lafreniere had done at the same effective age, uh, the year prior. So to me, I just, and so to me, I just almost wiped that right off the slate. It's, it's, it's significant in that it's the only world junior experience we have to judge of his, but it's insignificant in that it just really isn't representative of the full body of work for him. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. You have to throw that world junior information out of your head when you're making this evaluation because in the grand scheme of things, and, and this gets a little bit you know, into the weeds when we're talking about prospect evaluation, you see so much movement on these lists throughout the course of a mm-hmm. year, but it's it's so important to remember that you have more information than this year. 
You have the way the player played last year. You have the way that the player played the year prior. You have their development history. You have their year-over-year progression. You have so much more information that you can utilize. And sure, their draft year is, is certainly important. But I think then taking not only just their draft year, but then augmenting the performance at a you know under-20 championship for a 17-year-old kid who's by far the youngest player there, I think that just blows it completely out of proportion. And, and using that and kind of using that to outweigh his production in the best Canadian Hockey Junior League uh, is, is just kind of, uh, I think, asinine in my opinion. Yeah, so if you have the second pick, you, you're the GM here, doesn't matter what team. Are you taking Stutzler or Byfield? I'm still taking Quentin Byfield at this point. I have no problem taking Tim Stutz, uh, like seeing someone take Tim Stutzler at two. I think you can make the justification. And again, I'm kind of, you know, going to make my point that I'm not making a hard and fast statement that any player is definitively better than another one, you know, at, yeah. at their 17 year old state. But, you know, with the available information I have and, and what I've seen, you know, from Byfield this year and how well he's performed in a good junior league for how young he's been on a bad hockey team. I I have just a, you know, I have to take this kid that has all of the potential and the physical tools. And and so I have a hard time passing on that. I think you can make a compelling argument for Tim Stutzla. But, you know, at this point, I think with the available information, you have to take Quentin Byfield. I think I'm in the same boat there. Just it's the upside. It's the, you know, marginal advantage of certainty and, and the fact that he's a center, the physical toolkit, the rarity of that, to me, it's just, to me, I think I'm in the same page with you there. But that said, if I'm a GM, I want them both. Yeah, I mean, if you want them, you know, if you want them both, you just go be Ottawa's GM, where if you're looking at Bob's <laughs> list, where you potentially could land at three and six, I mean, you could walk away with Byfield and Raymond, who were, you know, arguably the number two and number three players heading into this draft year. And so, you know, it's it's, it's a fascinating turn, but... That being said, I think both are outstanding players. To me, I think you, you, you give the edge to Byfield, again, with his production this year, with his physical tools. He should not be anywhere near six. I think our uh, listeners would run me out of town if I didn't put you on the spot about one of the other very interesting takeaways, at least in the write-up of the McKenzie list. Jake Sanderson comes in at number eight overall, which is slightly higher than I think you've been talking about him. But, but... Bob McKenzie does cite that there were two scouts of the 10 he surveyed that had him at number three on the list. Yeah, I mean, number three is absolutely wild for me. Uh, I think we know historically, again, remembering that McKenzie's list is an aggregation of a lot of what scouts think and where players may go. We know defensemen are, are going to get picked in the top 10. We know that Jamie Drysdale is likely going in the top five. And we know that Jake Sanderson's likely going to go in the top 10, despite the fact that I personally believe there are a number of forwards that are better than uh, Sanderson at their positions and, and in terms of what potential value they might provide. You know, that being said, scouts are going to value the defenseman and they're going to find a way to take the defenseman, uh, I think, early in the draft. And I, I think it's very plausible that you see four defensemen drafted in the top 20 when arguably the only two that should be drafted in the top 20 are uh, you know, you know, um, Sanderson and then Drysdale. I mean, really, there's nobody's business uh, really else being in the top 20, but you're going to see guys like Sanderson, Gooley, potentially Braden Schneider, potentially Justin Barron, if someone's reaching, uh, all go in the top 20 simply because that's just what, you know, the scouts are overvaluing. And, and Sanderson certainly had a better back half of the year. He's got a lot of the... Uh, tools that that scouts like. You'll hear them talk about it. To me, I just don't see the upside in the league that he played in um, from a production standpoint. Uh, historically, when this has been evaluated analytically, um, defensemen that score in their lower levels are the defensemen that tend to have a lot more sustained success at the NHL level. And, and Sanderson, by no means, was an outstanding scorer at his position um, you know, relative to to some of the other defensemen that have come through the USHL and the U.S. Uh, developmental program the last few years. So he's going to go in the top 10, get comfortable with the idea of him going in the top 10. Uh, but I personally believe that there are forwards ranked behind him that I would rather have over him at this point. Yeah. So I don't have the first person 
or in person or even just myself online looks at uh, Sanderson that I you know have have tried to spend a little more time watching at least video if if I couldn't see them at any point in person on some of the other players in this top range. So I don't know a ton about Sanderson firsthand here, but just reading about him, you know, you read about. Uh, the obviously it's the combination of size, skating. Corey's got a, a 60 grade on his hockey sense. Uh, not a ton of offense is the in, in terms of like the carrying trait, but the profile here sounds a little bit like Moritz Sider. It does, and and honestly, I've seen some people make the comparison that he's similar to Moritz Sider, and that's why I think you're going to see some team in the back half of the top 10 bite on taking Jake Sanderson because. The profile is there. The tools are there. The, the pieces are there for what looks like a solid hockey player. Uh, that being said, I think the big distinction I'll pull out here is, is again, Sider's competition level in the DEL last year is vastly superior uh, to what Sanderson faced this year. And while we didn't see a lot of Sider in the DEL, he just didn't play minutes really whatsoever. Um, so it's, it's kind of harder to assess his scoring. We did see a lot of Sanderson's minutes this year, and I just, I personally, like I said, with the level of competition he faced, he didn't necessarily score at the level of a defenseman I would want to take that highly um, as a potential franchise-changing defenseman when there are guys like Anton Lundell, you know, ranked behind him. And I think Lundell is a guy that could be very successful at the NHL level. You'd take Lundell over Sanderson. I would take Lundell over Sanderson. And, and even a guy that, um, you know, McKenzie had ranked a little bit lower in terms of Seth Jarvis. Jarvis is another guy with his scoring upside. You know, you consider taking above Sanderson. I think you consider Jack Quinn again above Jake Sanderson. Quinn's a guy that I haven't been super high on the whole year, but he's still a 50 goal scorer in the top Canadian hockey league. And while he had the benefit of playing on a loaded Ottawa 67s team, he's got one of the best shots in the draft and he's another player you take. Alexander Holtz is a guy, you know, you just profiled going fourth overall and he's got to be the best scorer in the draft in my opinion. I can't justify taking a defenseman that doesn't have that kind of elite upside in my opinion uh, over those kinds of players. Again, that being said, all of this is said, you know, not heavily, not strongly. This is just kind of my opinion based on the available evidence right now. Yeah, I think there's a few considerations here and and obviously when you're going into a draft, you got to draft this year's draft, right? You can't be looking ahead too much to next year. Uh, you can't be looking ahead too much to what you think your team is going to look like in a certain year because a lot can change. That said, I have a hard time not peeking forward a little bit to next year and seeing so many defensemen expected to be in that top conversation, uh, even potentially at the very top of that draft where the Red Wings expect to be picking in the top five somewhere again. And I see defenseman after defenseman who could potentially be in there. There's another Hughes in there. Luke is a defenseman. He's a little, he's, he's six foot. So he's a little bit bigger than, uh, than Jack was certainly. Uh, and even Quinn, I think Quinn's only what, 5'10 or 5'11. Yeah, so I mean, Quinn's not another Hughes. In, right. So you look at that, you see Owen Power, the Chicago Steel is kind of that 6'5 hulking guy. He's, you know, whatever. So to me, you, you got to draft this year, but I have a hard time thinking, looking ahead to next year, that you're not going to want to draft a defenseman with your top pick next year, right? And with a lot of forwards in that high, uh, up, up high, the highest tiers this year, man, I, it, it might if if you if you go defense uh, this year, and whether that's with Drysdale or whether that's with Sanderson, you might be ending up taking a defenseman with your top pick three years in a row. Now that can work. I'm a big believer that you got to have a really sound blue line to win. But you do often see when it comes down to kind of those war leaders, a lot of forwards right up there with the best of them. And I don't know how much that is like just relevant to the, to the inputs of the stat. I don't know. You know, obviously there's the old defense wins championships, but oftentimes your forwards are the ones that are the one are, that are scoring the goals. And um, I don't know. So I don't I don't know where you stand on this as to whether uh, whether they should wait next year's draft pool at all in this I, I know kind of on the face you, you know you're of the mind and, and I think I would tend to agree with this that the forward crop just is best player available and that's what should govern things but from a macro view like it's kind of interesting to imagine if they did take whether it's a Drysdale or a Sanderson in this draft and the poll that looks like it's going to be there to take a, a defenseman in next year's draft like the I don't know. What does that do for, for the outlook of the rebuild in your mind? Yeah, I mean, you, you obviously can't be looking ahead and kind of playing the system because, you know, you could be the San Jose Sharks where you just get 
yes. you know, absolutely wrecked and you have nowhere near what you think your year is going to look like and, and you end up in a, in a very different position. So you never want to game the system thinking ahead. You got to play, you know, the chips you've got dealt to you right now. And so for Detroit, that's taking the best players available. In my opinion, this is a very weak defensive class this year relative to last year and relative to the year that's coming up. Um, and even Bob McKenzie says it, that this year they only ranked six defensemen in the top 31. Last year they ranked 11. If you fast forward to next year, there's a chance that seven defensemen go in the top 15. I mean, that's how good the defensive group is in 2021 between, you know, like Luke Hughes, Owen Power, Carson Lambos, Brant Clark, you know, Daniel Chaika. I mean, there's so many defensemen that are in that group that's likely going to be top 15 picks that next year. Um, that again, if you're Detroit, you're presuming that's where you're going to pick. But right now you play the draft the way you've got it. That's telling you best player available. And in all honesty, the best players available right now are forwards if you're not landing Jamie Drysdale. And so to me, that's where that philosophy of these guys are ahead of Jake Sanderson is for me. Is Sanderson a good defenseman? Yes. I just don't see that without that scoring touch in the lower levels. I don't know that I'm confident in projecting him to be that elite player at the next level when you've got a lot of other guys that have demonstrated, you know, a little bit more of that proficiency. So I think that's how Detroit has to play it. But, you know, they'll, we'll, we'll be surprised. Who knows? I mean, Moritz Sider came out of left field last year when you had guys like Trevor Zegris and Dylan Cousins on the board, and and those were two dynamic pivots. So um, Steve Eiserman is not afraid to to go after the guy he truly believes is the best player. Yeah, as much as I think that that offensive, and I and I do, I think the offensive game changer, dynamic offensive players, whether it's playmakers or scorers, are a, a are the main thing the Red Wings need in this rebuild at whatever position, whether it's forward or defense. But in this draft, the defensemen don't seem to be of that kind of Hughes style defenseman, Makar style defenseman, where it's going to be an offensive uh, first profile. I do think that's the number one thing they need. I will say. If you end up with a, a defenseman in this draft and, and you end up getting someone who's going to play huge minutes again, there's worse ways to build your team than just by having a ton of absolute studs on the blue line. I just think that the, the, the main thing they're missing at this point uh, is, is offensive game breakers. They did not score nearly enough goals last year. Uh, and, and while the defense is in rough shape, too, they gave up a ton. You got more cider one step away. You got, you know, Gustav Lindstrom was, was making a little bit of progress there um, in, in terms of your, your defensive defenseman toward the um, toward the end of the year when he came up. So I just think I would lean toward, number one, I think it's the best player available. Number two, I think it actually does represent the need for, for real offensive game changers there. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And that's why I think if you're Detroit, you swing for the forwards. Um, but it may not even be a decision they have to deal with if they're picking at four um, you know, so we'll see. But again, always expect the unexpected with Steve Eiserman. Exactly. I mean, that, that that's where this is all coming from. If if, if we were just going the base off the board, I guess Jamie Drysdale is technically the guy on the board at number four uh, for the Bob McKenzie list. But you know, a- after after last year, regardless, uh, I will not rule out any possible draft pick for Steve Eiserman this year. And that includes Sanderson. That includes Yaroslav Askarov, even though I still think that's even more likely still. And probably that would would drive you more crazy than them taking Sanderson, I assume. Yeah, I mean, that would drive me absolutely nuts because you just can't take a goaltender first overall. You're talking about (laughs) taking a player that's going to potentially impact. Fourth, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, sorry, fourth overall. But you're you're talking about taking a player that isn't really likely to have a significant impact on your franchise for the next four to five years. Whereas, again, some of these other guys, the timeline is so much closer. You, You just can't do that. Yep. All right. Okay. Let's move down the list a little bit. And actually, let's just from here. Let's just we we did a kind of mock analysis, mock draft analysis last episode. But let's go through at the Red Wings various projected spots and let's find players in those tiers and, and let's kind of have a little bit of a mock uh, debate for for not so much a draft, but but basically. Uh, so four. Do you want to start at four? Or do we want to just proceed from there? Yeah. I assume you're going to say Marco Rossi. I'm going to say. Lucas Raymond or Rossi, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the easy one for me is Marco Rossi at four, even though he slips to seven on, on Bob McKenzie's list because I think one scout had him at 18, which that's a that's a tough one. Um, that being said, I, I just can't ignore uh, Rossi's complete game. You can have concerns about his size, but there's a number of other talented five foot nine centers that just have elite compete. Um, you know, Braden Point is one in Tampa. And, and so he's a guy that, 
Uh, I don't think Steve Eisman would be afraid to take if he's there. So I'm going to take Rossi at four. I think I'll agree with you. I do think Raymond is the one that has the potential to just be the electric, you know, lightning in a bottle player just with with, with the skill set that he has. And I, I would put Holtz and in, in his scoring into the conversation too. Perfetti seems to be on the rise a little bit with with his playmaking ability. But I agree. I think, and I think part of it is positional with Rossi. But I think that two C spot's so important. You get a guy who profiles in the two way game that the Red Wings really seem to value. Uh, he's small, but he's going to work hard. From everything that we've we've heard and read uh, and and seen in in small video samples, so the production is there. I, I think I'm with you on that one. Yeah, I think he's just too good to ignore there. Okay, uh, let's go down to 32 then, and that's where things I think start to get interesting. And there's some players here that I don't think either you or I were necessarily expecting. Uh, to be there, like, you know, Jeremy Poirier, who at many points this year was seen as kind of a uh, first-round pick potentially up around, like, 20. He's there at 33 on the McKenzie list. Uh, Helga Granz out of Sweden from – I think he played most of the year in the Super Elite, if that's right. Yeah. Um, but he's another – He's fits that profile the Red Wings have drafted of their defensemen. He's, I think he's listed at 6'2 on the TSN list. Um, Jan Mishak's a center who I think both you and I like. There's uh, Topi Nimala, who's Finnish, played in Liga this year. I know you're high on him. And then even at the very end of the first round, you get William Wallander at 6'4". He was ranked 27 on the McKenzie list. Brendan Brisson, he's a Michigan commit uh, out of the Chicago Steel at number 30. There's interesting names all around here. Yeah, I mean, this is a – it's very fascinating to see some of these guys that are, you know, in this in this range. I think another name that really stands out to me is Tyler Clevin, who – most lists, if you look outside of this McKenzie list, don't really have Clevin highly ranked. Like some lists have him in the 80s. And so seeing him all the way up He's at not on Corey's list. Yeah, yeah. So like he's a guy that's just kind of popped here out of nowhere. And and he's a name for me that's kind of a red flag if you've got so many scouts that uh, don't even have him factored in. Now, sure, some NHL scouts do um, there. And I, I can tell you the big reason why he's six foot four, 200 pounds as a defenseman. That's why he's on that list. And to me, he strikes me as a very similar player to Alex Vlasic um, from last year. For those that remember kind of the USHL, the US uh, development team, Vlasic was a big defenseman, um, not super mobile, didn't score a lot. That's kind of what Tyler Clevin is. And Vlasic ended up going in that second round. So Clevin's a guy I would not want um, at that 32 pick. Even, um, you know, Poirier is another guy that I don't want because if you look at him, you say, wow, the guy's got some points. Uh, he's, he's scoring well from a defenseman. The guy's effectively a forward. Like the amount that he cheats into the play. Like if you thought Dennis Jalowski as a rookie cheated up into the play, you haven't seen Jeremy Poirier play. The guy is basically another winger out there. And while sometimes that's useful, I just don't see him being potentially, you know, being able to translate that or rein that in well enough, um, you know, to to play at the NHL level, unless you decide that you're going to take him and make him a forward. That's almost uh, what I think you have to do with him because of how aggressive he plays from the back end. So if I'm picking at 32, you know, I don't have a problem taking Helga Granz. I'm kind of hoping that Brendan Brisson slips because I think he's an extremely talented player, another center Um you know, that the Red Wings could use. Uh, I think Topi Nimela is going to be a good defenseman. He's another guy that I think if you're looking defense, you could consider there. And then Merit Hushnutinov, um, undersized as a center. I think McKenzie's got him listed at 5'11". I think other sites have him listed at 5'9". It will certainly factor in um, to how he gets drafted. But he's, again, another highly talented player who's kind of snuck up a lot of uh, lists over the course of the year, having kind of really dominant season in the MHL, which is kind of the mid-tier Russian league. So any one of those guys to me would satisfy. But if you're kind of pinning me in on one name, it would probably be Brendan Brisson, assuming I can reach up two picks. I'll let you reach up two picks. It falls within that uh, five average uh, error, right? Yeah. that, That seems like a fair, yeah. Uh, I'm going to put Helga Granz there and I know, uh, listener Lars is going to be hype about it. He's been all over. I think he's been, he's, he's the one who's tweeting us about Helga all the time, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So he's going to be hype about that, but, but here's why I'm doing it is it fits the profile that they've drafted with under Iserman. And, and I think, you know, when you look at a six, two big defenseman, he scored in Sweden, I'm looking up the stats right now to see exactly 
how competitive uh, his scoring rate was, but it, it, I'm pretty sure it's up there. It's right around a point per game. And I think when you look at the two Mistos and the ciders, like that's got to mean something. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it just fits the profile. So um, personally, I think that the Red Wings probably should try to stock up on forwards in this draft, but you got to take the best player at, at 32 that, you know, I don't see a, a, a problem at all with taking a, a defenseman who kind of fits your profile uh, and who scored really competitively. Yeah, and, and Grounds was was right up there. I think he was only behind Emil Andre in terms of defensemen uh, under 18 in the Super Elite this year. Yeah, and, and you know, right now we're in the bucket of players where there's not a whole lot that separates them at this point. There's probably a plus-minus range here of about 20 players you could pick from and yeah. say, yeah, I can justify that pick here. So, you know, for me, I, I kind of lean on, on Brendan Brisson. I think his scoring in the USHL was outstanding this year. Really kind of elite hockey sense, uh, in my opinion. But there's a number of other players you could make a case for. And I think Granz is a really reasonable pick there. All right, let's go to 51. Uh, I want to point out here that one of the things I was nervous about with my mock last week, which had Emil Andre at 51, was, you know, is that reasonable that he's still going to be there? It, on this list, Emil Andre is not only still there, he's not going off until number 67 on that list. I still think that it's possible that obviously he goes before 51 because like we've talked about any one team only needs to uh, needs to have him ranked higher. But I thought that was interesting. Thomas Bordalo is a player who I, you know, I don't even know where I necessarily expect him to go, but at 51, he's the, he's the guy slotted in there. Corey has him, uh, I think as high as number 33. So right at that, really in, at the range that he should be considered for the first second round pick. That's not a bad one either. If you're looking for a center out of the NTDP, uh, reasonably productive, that's worth a look in itself. Yeah, I think Bordelow's, you know worth a look. He's been ranked in the back half of first rounds in some mocks. To me, the guys that jump out, really guy that jumps out is Roni Hervonen, who some people, again, had in the early 20s um, for a lot of the year, you know, again, played really well. Uh, I think he's a guy that you want to look and say, hey, if I've got Roni Hervonen sitting here again as a center, Again, a little bit undersized uh, at five foot nine, but if you're taking a guy that's got that elite talent and upside, I'm going to bet on that uh, with Roni Ervonen. I think he's going to be an outstanding player, uh, and and being able to pick him up at at 51 would be fantastic. Really, all the guys that are listed 52, 53, 54, Roby Gerventi basically dominated Mestis, which is the second tier league um, in Finland, one of the highest scoring outputs there. Uh, and then Daniel Torgerson, a guy that you took in your mock, Max. I think he took him, what, 63rd. Uh, Bob's got him ranked 53rd here. Again, we've talked a lot about him, a big winger at six foot three that uh, plays really well in front of the net and kind of drives two-way possession. I'd be happy with any one of those three guys, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think those are, especially Torgerson, I think that makes a lot of sense. Justin Sordiff, if I can pull your move and reach up a few spots there, he's at 48. Um, you know, Vancouver productive player for Vancouver in the WHL. He's listed as a center slash right wing. If, if he's a center, that's interesting. Uh, especially since, since that's an area the Red Wings really do need a, uh, a second line center. Although I'm not sure it's reasonable to expect finding that in, in the second round, especially late in the second round. Um, Joe Valeno, kind of the guy who right now you and I, I think are, are kind of tentatively projecting that on a contender, he's going to be. Uh, a third line center. So if you're not getting someone who you reasonably think is going to be better than, or, or has good potential to be better than Joe Valeno, um, I, I wouldn't get too bogged down on the center thing, but a good player is a good player. Yeah. I mean, a good player is a good player and you, you want to take talent and that's kind of how, you know, I've tried to do my mocks and that's how your, your picks are there. And so if you're able to land a center, that's, uh, that's the way to go. And if you get some of these guys that can swing up and, and hit the top of their upside, then, I think you're in a really good spot. I think the other thing that I've tried to be strategic about with with my drafting uh, thus far is, um, you know, related to the coronavirus pandemic, some of these European leagues are going to get started again. Um, and you're going to get game action for those guys. And so you, I don't know if that's going to necessarily factor in on draft day because um, you could certainly try and work out loans to Europe, but... Uh, that being said, I, I, I do think some of the European players should get a, a little bit of an edge here uh, to make sure there's no interruptions of their development. That's interesting. It, it's interesting that just the idea that they could get more looks on the European players than they would have on North American guys. Like if you resume and all of a sudden you've got Torgerson playing in, let's say, 
the SHL for Forlunda. I mean, that could be limited minutes, uh, or maybe he stays in the super elites and, and he's getting huge minutes and he's racking up gobs of goals for them. Like, there's really interesting potential ripple effects that could come with not just the Swedes being the only league or, or the, the Europeans, I should say, being the only leagues playing, but also what actual roles those guys are in to start the year and what kind of uncertainty that does or doesn't create. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about the three guys that I just listed off there in terms of, you know, Jarventi, Hervonen, and, uh, um, you know, Torgerson. I mean, Hervonen's already slotted to play in Liga. He played in Liga most of uh, this year already, and so he'll play again in Liga. I mean, potentially get a larger role being able to do something. I would suspect that Jarventi will be able to play uh, in, in Liga as well. And so, again, you're now talking about guys getting – uh, a shot in the top leagues in these countries. I mean, Liga's already set a start date in October, I believe. So, you know, that that could offer you a little bit of an advantage when you're trying to draft these players in terms of not having interruptions in their development. Yeah. Okay. And then just to wrap up here, um, let's just group 58, 63, and 65. I think those are the other picks the Red Wings uh, are slated to have. And obviously things can change a little bit. Um, especially with the 58 pick, depending on the results of the playoff that may or may not happen. But um, let's give me two or three names in that range that interest you on the Bob McKenzie list. Yeah, I mean, looking at McKenzie's list, I think Yoni Yermo, who's uh, playing in the uh, Finnish Junior League, he's a really nice defenseman, six foot four, 190 pounds, really decent uh, player, scored well offensively. I think he's a guy you want to look at. I think Emil Andre, like we've talked about a lot, mm-hmm. I think really well built. The, the the knock on him is the lack of this elite skating talent, given that he's five foot eight. But I, to me, he strikes me as a Sam Gerrard type player. I think he could be a really, really um, good player. And then all the way down at the bottom, um, you know, at seventy five, another guy I really like is Martin Kromiak, uh, who again has fallen under the radar because he played a lot. Uh, of this year in the Czech League and then came over to the OHL, scored at a really high rate, top 10 rate uh, in the OHL amongst draft-eligible players. That's kind of gone under, under um, you know, the radar. And so I think those three guys worth long looks. I mean, obviously, you also have Zion Nybeck, Emil Heinemann, uh, Theodore Niederbach, Kasper Simon Taibo. I think these guys are all worth long looks. But the three I listed are probably the three that I would – you know, be most interested in at this point. Yeah, and I certainly echo your thoughts on Chromiak. Um, I also want to point out Jan Kuznetsov, who's a guy who, he's at 62 on the Bob McKenzie list. He's a guy who played at Connecticut this year in the NCAA in his draft year. So the production numbers aren't crazy by any means, but, and I, you know, I don't know that the profile is necessarily that of, of someone who's going to be um, the offensive-minded defenseman per se. Corey's got him at number 59 on his list. Um to me, that you know, that's in line, obviously, with the McKenzie list. To me, that's it's it's the profile, big defenseman, uh, hockey sense. The skating's not uh, rated particularly highly on Corey's scale. Good physical game and, and solid puck skills. To me, that's interesting. Like I, I haven't gotten to see too much of Kuznetsov, um, but just in terms of profile, another name that I think could be interesting. And, and certainly, when you take a guy who's a March birthday playing up uh, in the hockey East already. You know, that that at least is enough to catch my eye. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's worth a look. Like I said, you're now in the territory But it's not where, the home run offensive swing. I get that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, you're you're now in the territory where there's a lot of guys that are, that again, there's not much that separates them. To me, can you justify Kuznetsov in those picks? I think you could. Um, for me, there's a lot of those other guys there, like Emil Andre, who I think has a lot more upside um, to his game than Kuznetsov. And so that's where, if I'm in that third, fourth rounds now, uh, if you remember back to, to Dom Lushizen's article talking about the value of the draft picks, you know, he and I were having a back and forth about that because we both looked at it in the past. Um, really, once you're getting outside of that third round, you are hoping for a diamond in the rough. And so uh, I think at that point, all, all bets are off. You're kind of swinging for the fences. And that's why there's a lot of players that you can make a justification on. And, and Kuznetsov's the guy I think he could. To me, I like a couple guys a little bit more, but by all means, it's a it's a reasonable pick. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. All right, you ready to go to the questions? Let's do it. All right, this one's from Tony Timmer. I think it's a great one. Uh, he wants to know, with, with the lottery scheduled for 8 p.m. on Friday, and I can't believe we haven't actually mentioned that yet. It is a rather large week for the franchise. Uh, Tony wants to know, what kind of rituals do you think Red Wings fans should be doing to provide the best chance of winning the lottery? 
pour your nicest bourbon. Be sure that you've got a glass ready. Make sure you've got something you can break at about 8.15 p.m. Are you just listing uh, things you already do and have? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listing actually what my plan is at this point. So, uh, you know, so just 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 be mentally prepared and actually really be prepared at 7.45 when the, when the lottery leaks like it did last year. So, um, you know, you can actually get the pain out of the way early. How do you feel about leaked lotteries? I have no problem. Do you with like it. the suspense? Okay, I, I think it's all a charade, in my opinion. Like, I don't, I don't actually care. Like, just give me the list at eight p.m. That's fine. I don't, I don't need the suspense and, and you know, all of that emotional buildup that then drives you to drink more bourbon. Fair enough. Um, I don't know that I have a great ritual for you. I think, uh, I think you just, you just gotta visualize and meditate. I think that's the only way to do it. Maybe what I could do is I've got a Stanley Cup mug. So maybe I'll pour a beer in that and drink the beer out of the Stanley Cup mug. There you go. All right. I like that. All right. Um, here's from Brian. Aside from Cider, Chalowski, and Lindstrom, are there any other Griffins uh, who you think would – it says you're hoping will get full-time looks next season. How about who will benefit from full-time look? Who would benefit or uh, yeah, from, from looks in the NHL next season? Uh, so aside from Cider, Chalowski, Rasmussen, is that what – Lindstrom. Out? He didn't say Rasmussen, so I'll take so, that so as one of the answers. Yeah, Rasmussen's obviously the guy that I think benefits from the most from having a full season look um, in the NHL because I think, again, he had a solid run in the short amount of games he got in in Grand Rapids this year. I think he would be um, a good one to elevate, potentially play him on the wing a little bit and kind of ease his transition to center at the NHL level. Um, outside of that, I mean, if I get to call Giovanni Smith – uh, a, a Griffin, then yes, I think he also deserves a run on the fourth line in place of, you know, guys like Adam Ernie and, and Brendan Perlini in terms of a full-time role. Yep. I think that's the only answer is Rasmussen. I think Valeno could use some more time in Grand Rapids. Uh, Chase Pearson, probably a little more time in Grand Rapids. So I would agree if, if we're assuming Giovanni has graduated from that. Um, Anthony Novello says, goalies for next year, why wouldn't Bernier be the guy? I mean, Bernier is the guy. And then I think you fill out with kind of a cheap backup uh, out of free agency, and and you go from there. Could you bring back Jimmy Howard? You could. Um, to me, I think this year kind of illustrated that he's really struggling, and it wasn't injury-related to our knowledge. So I don't know that you're going to gain much by bringing him back, but he's a name you could put out there, as well as um, you know any number of the goalies that we've talked about in the past, Thomas Grace, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, how about, I agree, Bernier is the guy. So the goalies, yeah, whoever you pull off the free agency. Uh, Peter Clutcher says, are you mentally prepared for the possibility that Eiserman goes way off board like last year? And if he does, would it revise your priors about whoever they pick? Uh, I think it's important from a statistical standpoint to not let it revise your priors. Um, you know, I'm not going to post hoc adjust my opinion on a player because uh, Steve Eiserman picked him. I think it's important that you don't, even if you're in his organization or even if you uh, are his best friend, because at the end of the day, you want to avoid the scenario where you have an echo chamber uh, of similar ideas because people all want to kind of appeal to that authority. So from my standpoint, I'm going to believe in what I do in terms of evaluating the prospects and, and paying attention to what's going on. And I'm going to hold on to my opinion because I think having that different opinion is a valuable, you know, opinion overall. And and so is anyone that's advising him. I would assume that anyone that talks to Eisenman would want to have the same mindset. And I would assume that Eisenman would want them to have the same mindset. So I think really importantly, do not adapt your, what you think if you have put in the work based on what ultimately happens you know, I'm not going to go revisionist on more at Cider last year. I thought it was a mistake when Cider went that early. And even if you were to redraft today, I think Cider looks a lot better. But there's still guys that were available, particularly Zegers, that you would still likely put ahead of Cider. So I think it's important to to keep that perspective and keep that ability or kind of confidence in what you're doing so that, you know, you're you're not necessarily just appealing to authority, if that makes sense. I agree. And especially for you. Uh, with your statistical background on that, I will say there was a phrase you had in there that is the complete make or break on this. If you've put in the work, well, right, I right. would say, 
Yeah, you have to actually know what you're talking about to have something like that. Whereas, like, if you're if you're someone who even you know, for me, like I I've watched some of these guys. I have not watched nearly enough to say you know on the level of like a Scott or a Corey or you know one of these scouts. Like it it will in some way revise my opinion of someone if they go at number four overall. Given that I've only watched so much of them. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Like you can make the the statement that oh, this guy went at number four. I didn't really watch that much of them. Let me go back and exactly. get, develop my informed opinion. And I think that's fine. I think that's totally reasonable thing. And I think that's what a lot of people did with more insider last year, myself included. Um, you know, I think as a lot, but if you've put in your hundreds of hours of work, you've done your homework, you've done your research, you know, you should be able to critically evaluate what's done and also recognize something that I said at the top of the show in that you should not hold on to your opinion so hard and fast with this evaluation. These are 17-year-old kids where so much can happen between draft day and the time they hit the NHL that there's no way you can be 100% confident in anything. So you, you should have some wiggle room in terms of how confidently you hold that opinion, but you shouldn't be revising your opinion on draft night based on where a player's going. I would agree with that. And I think, you know, so much of it does come down. You know, I, I agree about not deferring to authority. You do also have to, in, in some ways, uh, understand what a scout sometimes knows that you might not. When you look at like a Tyler Bertuzzi pick uh, for the Red Wings, that was viewed as a reach, right? But one of the reasons that it didn't turn out to have been a reach is because of what the Red Wings kn- knew about Bertuzzi and, and how he was going to approach things. Um, so uh, there's always elements like that too. And I think that certainly could apply to the cider conversation, especially, you know, a little bit of a unique case because of the fact that he was playing in a men's league and not playing maybe quite as much as you would have liked to, to know the full complement of his game and all that. But, um, so is it going to revise my priors to the extent that I feel like I have a handle on what guys do well and, and, and where they need to improve? No, but you know, when when someone goes higher than I think they will, I think that's always a nudge to go back and see can I can I make sense of that pick if I go back and watch more. To that extent, I think that is fair. Yeah, yeah, completely. And, and again, you know, like you said, you have to be comfortable with the fact that there may be things that you just don't know as a, as a person in the public sphere. I mean, you mm-hmm. don't have access to the same information these teams do. You weren't in the room when they were doing their interviews. Uh, you know, things like that. So uh, there's there's certainly information that just we aren't privy to as people in the public, but uh, all that being said, I, I don't know that you should be aggressively swinging your opinion based on what is done uh, on draft night. I agree with that. Yep. Okay. Uh, Michael Petrella says, if the Red Wings win the lottery, they'll take Lafreniere full stop. If they go two, would you – and we've already answered that uh, with Byfield versus Stutzla. Uh, and if they get number four, he wants to know – we've already kind of answered this, so maybe it's just a scrap. We're going you, – you and I, we're in agreement. Rossi at, at four should be Detroit's pick? Yeah, yeah. Marco Rossi at four. Okay. Uh, let's see. Tim Larry, would there be – would it make sense for the Red Wings to trade – their first round pick this year, if it was two through four in a package for Jack Eichel, I'm going to amend the question really because I think you could trade the number one overall pick for Jack Eichel and you're winning that trade. So I don't even think like it's it's even limited to two through four. Yeah. To me, though, if I'm Detroit, I don't know that I make that move. And and it has to do with the timeline, the timeline of, yeah. of the rebuild, right? So if you inject Jack Eichel as a 23-year-old, again, very young, very much in his prime, uh, onto this team, the problem is his timeline, while it lines up with Dylan Larkins, doesn't really line up with the guys that you've got coming on the back way. And in my opinion, Jack Eichel does not take Detroit anywhere near a playoff team. And so now you're going to commit a lot of money to this guy who is entering his prime will likely sustain 90% of his prime for the next seven years, but is also going to tie up a lot of dollars right now and won't necessarily line up in the same fashion as some of the guys you've got coming along the road in terms of a Moritz Sider and guys that are drafted this year and next year. And so in my opinion, trading for Eichel is a move you make when you are maybe a piece or two away and you're looking to accelerate that timeline because he's about five years forward from the player that you're going to draft right now. And to me, I don't think that Detroit could make that move jumping five years forward, even for the known commodity of Jack Eichel. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I I just think you know I, I agree that it's it's not the, it's not a move that would make first of all it's not a move that's going to happen and I know that right now just the the Eichel frustration comments are what's leading this out into this fear but it's there's not like a present especially when we're talking about this year's draft pick the Sabers aren't going to trade Jack Eichel uh, and number two the Red Wings aren't a team that makes a whole lot of sense for him especially considering that if what he's bothered by is not winning going to a team that just had the worst season in like 20 years is not the medicine for that but I also think there seems to be an idea that like Eichel would be worth like you know the first round pick but not if it's first overall like Eichel is what you dream of at first overall yeah I mean Eichel is what you want to get at the first overall pick and that's where there's going to be some confusion saying, well, okay, if what you want is Jack Eichel and you can trade that for Jack Eichel, then why don't you do that? And to me, it just has to come down to the, it comes down to the timeline perspective. And I just don't think that it totally lines up. I think then the nat- next natural question is, okay, well, what about guys like Larkin and Mantha? And I think the answer to that is you've already got those guys locked into nice cost controlled contracts that are going to be able to span you know, the period of time you want them to span. And the other difference is neither of those guys are really in Eichel's kind of stratosphere in terms of uh, player that you're getting. So to me, I think you've got a better cost control player and from a Larkin and Amantha standpoint, you're not taking on the $10 million cap hit that Jack Eichel has for the next seven years, I believe. So I, to me, it's just it's not the right gamble to make because it just doesn't line up with the timeline of everything else. Yep, I agree. I was just saying, like, a, the, you know, pushing back on the idea of the value would be like imbalanced if it was number one. Like, I I don't see that at all. I think that's, uh, I think that's the 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 exact level that you should be hoping for with your number one overall pick. If if your number one pick turns into Jack Eichel, you are jumping for joy, even though he was number two pick. Right. I mean, you. I'll say this: the number one pick alone doesn't get you a, doesn't get you Jack Eichel. I think it's number that's one my plus too. something. Thank you, Jack Eichel. So I agree. Okay, I just want to make sure. All right, uh, I think that's everything for today. So we will be back at you guys. Well, we'll probably come. We'll, we'll do something after the lottery, I assume, uh, for better or for worse. So enjoy the week. Uh, I'm sure everyone will be on pins and needles. And uh, yeah, keep uh, keep your. What was your your drinking out of your Stanley Cup mug or something? That's the yeah. ritual you settled on. Yeah, yeah there I you got go. it. That's your that's your that's your mission, everybody, for the week is uh, drink out of your championship apparel. All right, uh, we'll be back at you when we know the draft order, so enjoy. Enjoy.